Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book people. It's a great way to reach book people on the internet. If you want to get a message out to book people on the internet, go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, The Paris Review, Electric Literature. The list goes on. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. I'm the host of the Other People podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I have a great show for you today. I want to also say, I guess before we get started, that uh, I'm sitting in my kitchen. I'm at the dining room table. Normally, I try to clear the house out. I try to create a little space for me to do this, but uh, there are extenuating circumstances today. I'm trying to wedge this into a small pocket of time. It uh, It is impossible for me to clear the house. So the house is full of people. You might hear a wailing baby. You might hear my daughter, Evan. Hey. She's standing right next to me. She's hovering at close range watching me podcast. You know what it's like to be watched uh, when you do something like this by a six-year-old from a distance of about seven inches? Evan, uh, do you have anything to say for yourself? Do you want to say hello to everybody? Hi. Tell everybody what's happening in three days. Birthday. How old are you going to be? Six. What are you going to get? Um, I have no idea. And also, I am not six yet in just in three days. Okay. Uh, we're going to go out to breakfast on your birthday. I take you to breakfast every year on your birthday. Is that, is that okay with you? Yes, it is fine. You're all right with that? Yes. You got upset about it earlier. I know. It was because I, I, I forgot about it. And also, you could have told me earlier. All right. She doesn't like surprises. Uh, Did I mention that S.J. Watson is my guest? His novel Second Life is available now from Harper in paperback. uh, I'm doing things a little bit backwards. Second Life was the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, S.J. Watson was out here on book tour. I actually sat down at this table in this this, uh, dining room. He's the only in-person interview I've done since 
uh, we've been here, but he came over, sat down, we talked, and I'm sharing this interview uh, with you now, a little bit out of sequence, uh, but we had a really good talk, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So here he is, folks. This is S.J. Watson, and his novel, One More Time, is called Second Life. I always say it, it is a dream, but it's not even a dream I've, I've really ever had, by which I mean, you know, when I, I wrote the book, not ever daring to... I suppose I didn't dare to dream that this would happen, you know. It's the kind of... Uh, okay, well, how, let's, 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 let's try to uh, untangle how it happened. Mm. So you are working as an audiologist. Yes. That was your day job. Mm-hmm. But you were harboring uh, a secret desire to be a writer? Um, not so secret, maybe. But okay. yeah, my whole life I'd wanted to be a writer. You know, I remember <clears throat> as a child when you get asked the question, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was always be a novelist. It was always, that was always my ambition. But uh, it sort of life took a different direction and... Uh, I decided to train. I, I, th- I think that you know, I, I realise there's, there's, it's not an, it's not a good career choice necessarily in terms of financial stability and all right. of those things, which are really important, obviously. And so, um, I didn't study English at university. I studied physics, and went on to specialise in science and uh, audiology. And the writing was always there in the in the background. I was I was writing on and off. I've always written on and off. There have been some quite long periods when I did very little, but it was always there. I've always carried notebooks around and that kind of cliche, you know, um, and jotted ideas down. And little. Were you telling your friends I'm writing a novel? Um, for a long time I wasn't. So, yeah, for a long time it was, I suppose, a secret ambition. Um, but, yeah, it kind of came out of the, of the closet as, as, a novel, one does. as a writer, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I did a course... Um, and we're looking at 2009 now. So I, I began before I go, the book that became Before I Go to Sleep. I began on a course. And I remember the first night of that course. And um, what was the course? It was a, there's a publisher in the UK called Faber and Faber. Sure, yeah. And um, they were the first publisher um, then to have, to have actually run writing courses. And they'd done a few weekend courses. So, and they'd done a weekend in Paris, and, for example. Um, but this was their first six-month course. It was called Writing a Novel from Start to Finish. Um, they've since had to change the title apparently because someone tried to sue them because they didn't finish their novel on the six-month course. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did you finish a novel in six I know, months? No, I didn't. I got about. I don't know. I think. I think I was about seventy or eighty percent of the way through the first draft. That's still pretty good. Age. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I worked very hard. You know. It was. Uh, it felt like it was my. Um, I worked for my only chance, but it felt like my best chance. And it gave you, and it gave you like a, some structure, mm, you know, yeah, to have yeah. like any kind of an enforced discipline or at least like the, a social yeah, contract. Yeah, that. And, and also, but I think for me, the most significant thing was on the very first night of the course, Louise Doughty, um, the novelist, and she was one of the tutors. Um, I remember she sat there and she said, I, I, for, the six month, for the next six months at least, she said, I give you permission to think of yourself as writers. And that was a really, it might sound odd, but that was a kind of a profound thing for me because... Um, up until that point, I'd, I suppose I thought of myself as somebody who had writing as a hobby and somebody wanted to be a writer. But you had you had not quit your job entirely, but had dialed no, it back to part time. Yeah. So, I, but that's a significant thing to do. Yeah, it was, and it wasn't. It wasn't just going part time. It was also that I'd I'd gone from being a deputy head of a department in a big um, clinic in South East London, um, and so you know, earning a reasonable amount of money um, to. I went from that. I went part time and also to a much more junior position. So my kind of my take home pay probably halved overnight. So you were willing to make that sacrifice? Yeah, I felt like I had to. I it, I think it. You know, 
I've joked it was kind of my midlife crisis. It, it sort of was, really. I didn't, but I didn't go out and have an affair or buy a Ferrari or anything like that. I couldn't have afforded a Ferrari. But, you know, <laughs> I went on a writing course. But I think it was that thing that, for me anyway, I was approaching 40. And, um, and I suppose I was looking at my life and where I was going and, where, and what direction I was headed in. And I just sort of realised I don't, I don't want to... Being head of a department um, wasn't my ambition. My ambition was to be a novelist and have a book published. And, and I realised that I was not spending enough or you know, energy on achieving that and that it wouldn't just happen if, unless I worked at it, I suppose. And without being morbid or anything, it was that I didn't want to be at the end of my life and look back on my life and think I never really tried to write that novel. Well, it can be, I think it can be healthy to think about one's own death. Yeah. That's not morbid. That's, yeah. a, that's a healthy yeah. thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And I thought I'd, I'd rather be sort of there thinking, well, you know, I had a go and failed. I could live with myself, you know, if I, if I could look back and say, yeah, I, I had a go but failed. So had you ever, had you ever really t- written a novel before? Like, do you have a bad novel in the drawer? Yeah. You do? I do. Okay, Only good. the one. I'm quite lucky. <laughs> yeah, but I was going to so, say, because yeah. like, if, uh, you know, if your debut was your very first try, that's a hell of mm. a first try, but it wasn't your first try. No, and I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever met any novelist who, who I don't think, I think it's a myth that people sit down and create this amazing piece of work. You know, everybody learn, has to learn their craft. In anything, you know, whether it's a, you know, if you're a virtu- virtuoso pianist, you know, you don't sit down at the piano and just suddenly be able to play like that. You have to train and learn and practice and get better over time. So, yeah, but no, I do have a, com- I had, I completed a novel just before I started, before I go to sleep, um, which was the first time I'd actually finished one. Um, and then I'd, I'd read it and hated it and edited it and still hated it and then edited it again. So I think, I'd, you know, I I kind of like kicked it around um, and why not just quit after that? You were, but you had the, the because determination. Because I thought I was getting better. I you think did. that's the thing. That, that was my kind of guiding principle, actually. I thought, you know, as long as... And I still feel the same, you know. I, I still feel like I'm, I'm improving and learning more about writing, about who I am and about what I am as a writer. And, but certainly at the end of that novel, I still felt that, that perhaps that project had died, if you like, or, yeah. or, 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 I'd, or I'd gone as far as I could go with that book um, and it wasn't good enough. What's it called? I, it never had a title. It wasn't even. It wasn't even. It wasn't even good enough to have a name. It did have. A, <laughs> no, I can't remember what it was though. Um, at one point, I think it was called Still Life. Okay. It's quite a good. I might. Need, I might keep that. It's quite a good title actually. But no, um, I can't remember. Anyway, that's yeah. a sign right there. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, it, there is. There is still some ideas in that book that I think. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in that, and uh, I, I may. But I, but I, I, you know, even if I revisited that world of that abandoned novel, I know that I would start again. Essentially, you know, I might keep a couple of ideas, or maybe one of the characters might survive. But it, but actually, in terms of the plot and the story and everything else, it would have to go to completely change. Um, I think it's that thing that sometimes, if you spend too long on a project, it does sort of. The, it, it, it evaporates, or or it just kind of it has its own life. <clears throat> yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't good enough, and uh, um, I'd be sort of I would be mortified if it ever got published. But at least <laughs> you had the the awareness to know that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm all, I already thinking maybe I should just delete the file <laughs> <laughs> so that it's, it's never found. You know, yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, okay, so you take this, co- uh, this course at with favor and favor for six months. Mm. You've halved your uh, income. You've gone part-time. Mm. Like this is kind of the leaping, leap in the net will appear moment. So you start writing, you have, uh, I'm assuming a workshop environment where Mm. you're workshopping pages. Yeah. Yeah. We we had, we had, we had kind of not lectures as such, but we would, we would discuss things and then we would workshop each other's work. Okay. Yeah. And then how, like, take us to the point where you actually finished the manuscript. You, you said you got 70% of it done over the course of those six months. Then how much longer did you have to work? Um, let me try. Well, I yeah. So the, the course finished in the July of two thousand and nine. Right now, uh, and yeah, and I'd, I'd finished about seventy percent of before before I go to sleep. Although that had a different title then as well. Um, which, which was? Uh, oh God, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, it was called the Seahorse Diaries, which is a dreadful title. I accept. Okay. Uh, I but, had my reasons for calling it that, and I knew it wasn't really what it would end up being called. But but again, kudos, bigger. kudos for making the yeah, change. You've got to you've got to title your uh, word document something, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was about 70% of the way through. And then on the very final night of the course, um, we, had, we were visited by a couple of top agents. Um, and one of them was uh, Claire Conville. Um, and they just came along to tell us what our next steps should be and what they look for in a manuscript and what they would you know, suggest. And, um, and uh, we had a bit of a party afterwards and a couple of bottles of wine, well, quite a few bottles of wine were opened. And, um, and I just got chatting to Claire and uh, I were really liked her. Were you slurring? Was it uh, like, was I'd it like... like to say no, but I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, actually, by this point, yeah, because the party did sort of go on and we, we kind of like... Jettis and various people said the hardcore of about six or eight of us ended up in the bar at three o'clock in the morning. So I probably, I almost certainly was slurring by that point, yeah. Sure. But, but at, yeah, at about three o'clock in the morning, Claire said to me, so what is your novel actually about? <laughs> and, uh, and I told her, and she, sa- she said, you know, that sounds really interesting, so when it's finished, I'd love to read it. And, you know, when a, t- when a top, if you're an aspiring novelist, when a top agent says... I want to read your work when it's done. That was exactly what I needed to give me a kick up the backside. To, in, to even in the finished. midst, even in the midst of a drunken blackout, like you remember that the yeah, next morning. That was yeah. <laughs> that's what I, yeah, I woke up thinking, oh please, please don't let that be a dream. You know, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah. And um, and we stayed in touch, and that was in the July. And then by I, I finished the first draft actually in the August, thinking about it. So I must have been nearer the end than than I thought, but. But the way I work, a lot of my writing takes place in the editing stage. So the first draft, although I finished it after six months, really, six or seven months, was very scrappy. So I then spent another, I don't know, I think I eventually showed Claire the following April. So, you know, kind of another, however many months that is. Six or seven. Yeah, at least. Do you hand edit or do you just edit right there on your computer? A bit of both, but most on the computer, actually. Yeah. Um, certainly back then now, now I now I um, I do more on the page 
okay. then, and then type it all in. Um, so yeah, so I worked on it very hard, and actually no, I showed her in the in the in the January, very early, or even yeah, the very early January, and we did. She kind of gave me her feedback, and and uh, and uh, most memorably, I remember, <laughs> I'd, I'd given her this book, and um, she said, "You do know this is a psychological thriller, don't you?" And I didn't really. <laughs> how how come? Well, because um, I don't really. I, 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 I'm, I'm a little bit um, not anti-genre, but I like. I don't. I, I'm a bit averse to genre in terms of certainly when I'm writing, and, and, and also a bit when I'm reading because I think it can be very restrictive. You know, I've, I've got a friend whose book is now public. I've gone on to be published and to, to, with a lot of success, but she couldn't find a publisher for a long time because people were saying they didn't know what genre it fitted into. Yeah, so they want the marketing then, people yeah. want to know where to put it. Exactly, and I, and I get that. I totally understand that, but. Yeah. But um, I didn't. I didn't sit down with before I go to sleep and think I'm going to write a psychological thriller. I wanted to write a story about a woman with no memory, and you know the character came to me first. And because I've always loved, I mean, my favourite thing is story. You know, I I love the beautiful sentence and the great metaphor and the themes and everything that you can. You know, I love all of that and quote, quote literary fiction, which let's face it, is just another genre really. But. I'm a sucker for a story. I want, I want, I want to turn the page and have stuff happen and be surprised. And well, I was going to say because your work is, is you know, often described as like an incredible page turner. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, you know, wonderfully plotted. Mm. Um, you know, is this something that you know when you were sitting down? Like, obviously, you have this, uh, you know, this affection for it as a reader. But when you were sitting down, if you're not thinking that it's a psychological thriller. Were you uh, like outlining plot and really meticulous about yeah, it, or were you I just mean, feeling your way through? I think I think I'd, I'd written. I, I suppose really I'd written a psychological thriller by accident because what I now know, um, because I've read many psychological thrillers since, is that those are the they are the stories I love. You know, they're stories in which things happen, and 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 uh, you know, I, I'm 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 a fan of crime fiction. I'm less interested. I, I mean, I don't wish to. You know, I'm less interested in the kind of serial killer who's running around in a ski mask kind of crime fiction. I don't, think, I don't dislike those books, but it's not so much what I'm That's interested in. That's more like horror fiction, though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's like a level of intellect or something. I don't know what the right word would be, but when you talk about psychological thrillers, there seems to be a distinguishing factor. It's more of a thinker. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I'm... I'm I, I don't I don't sort of set out to scare the reader, but it's more that I I, I think it's much more um, affecting perhaps for the reader if you're reading a book about and, and imagining that could happen to you. You know, most of us aren't going to find ourselves trapped in a cabin in the woods with a with a guy in a you know a mask outside and picking us off one by one. That doesn't happen often, luckily. <laughs> obviously, um, there's still time. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Um, I think it's much more interesting for me uh, uh, and hopefully for the reader as well if, to think about the, the danger within the home, say, or within your family or within your circle, the, pe- the person who you trust who turns out to be not who they say they are or what they say they are. And that, that, I think that's what I'm sort of drawn to, that kind of domestic noir kind of genre, I suppose. Um, so, so yeah, so without even kind of meaning to, I think I'd written a psychological thriller, and then and then so what about the sales process? Like the book goes out, you, mm. know, you have a top agent, which helps, mm, which very much helps. Yeah. And so it yeah. goes out to publishers, and there's a pretty quick sale. 
Yeah, it was a, it was a, the most surreal. I think probably one of the most, certainly one of the most surreal experiences of my entire life. I remember <laughs> I gave the book to Claire, and we, we, we sort of worked very hard, we very very hard on it. Mo- you know, together toward the last couple of weeks, you know, we, we, fine tooth comb. I was t- I was sending her a draft, and she'd say, "Not quite sure about this on page fourteen, You know, it's very very fine. Yeah. And then um, um, I remember mid- she, she wanted to send it out on the Wednesday, I think it was, and at midnight on the Tuesday, she was still texting me to say. Yeah, I'm a bit, I've got, still got some concerns about. That's a good this. agent. Yeah, no, she, yeah, That's very, very, want. yeah. I was very lucky, um, and so we, yeah, and so I'd been working very. I was kind of sick of this book. Basically, I'd, I'd spent a long time, and and towards the end, very intensely, working on it, and uh, and then we, she sent it out on the Wednesday, and uh, and said, we won't hear anything. She said, in a week to ten days, I'll start chasing people. So I was sort of the next day. I was like, "Yeah, I can finally have at least a whole week of not thinking about this book and just living a life and reconnecting with all these friends who I'd kind of neglected, you know." And um, so I was having lunch with a friend of mine in in her garden in East London, and uh, my phone goes, <laughs> and it's Claire. <laughs> She's like, "The Germans are going to make an offer," and I was like, "What do you mean?" She said, "They were going to make what's called a preemptive offer for the book." Um, and I didn't even know what that meant. You know, the was, Germans? The Germans. That sounds she, menacing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, she, she'd sent it to a few publishers, um, a few, as in many publishers, but in, in Germany, France, I think, at, at first. And, oh, okay, because that's yeah. interesting, because I, I guess like it doesn't always happen that way, especially for a debut author, mm. that the publisher would go out to foreign markets right yeah. away that widely. Usually it's like you try to sell it at home and then if it goes, then maybe... Well, I think it had gone out to the UK and the States as well. Okay. And then, and then a handful of the, 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 the European territories. I think Claire had a whole... Claire and her, um, her team had a whole strategy about, you know, if we get interest here, then we can go to further east, for example, and say, look, we've already sold it in Germany and France and whoever. Right. Um, but yeah, within 24 hours, a, a big German publisher had come come back and uh, we're making it off and it was a it was a you know it, for someone who was working in the nhs part-time <laughs> you know it was a lot of money and claire was like i think we should turn it down though and that was a bit like oh i realized this is going to be a bit of a roller coaster um, i mean fa- great it was fantastic I don't, she I don't wanted know, to turn down the offer yeah she wanted to turn down the offer because uh, i don't know if you know but a, a preemptive offer it's a bit like the buy it now yeah, yeah. on on ebay you know so, right um you know, so the, the idea is they wow you with a very, very, with a large amount of money to tempt you not to take it to auction. And Claire was like, "Look, they've come back within twenty-four hours. I think we should go to auction." So that was like, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it was it was nail biting. Well, it was nail biting, but by, but actually, my goal, my goal when I sat down to write the book, well, first of all, it was to write a good book. But you know, with that was the goal to maybe one day be published. I never dared to hope I might be able to give up my day job. You know that wasn't even in my, in my. Uh, but I suppose when when the when the German offer came through, I thought, oh, if it carries on like this, I might be able to develop a cocaine habit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, or at least not have to go to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that began began to be a to feel like a possibility. So and I, and I realised it's very much what I wanted because the opportunity to just write books. I, th- I do feel, you know, without being too um, 
whatever about it, but I do feel it was why I was put on this planet. If you don't, if you don't, it's what I'm, it's what I'm supposed to do with my life. That's yeah. great. Yeah, and you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, I am doing it. That's so a lucky. I remind myself that every time I complain about. Right <laughs> about it, you right? Know, actually, you know, so, so I'm here in LA, what have I got to complain about? You yeah, know? you're on an international book tour. Yeah, that doesn't happen when you work in the health service. So, okay, so you sell the book. It's your debut. Uh, it goes to auction. Mm. You're making good money. You can quit your day job. Very exciting. Mm. But there's still no guarantee that the book is going to do well in the marketplace. Yeah, that's so then true. you've got to live up to your advance. Then you've got to live mm. up to this, you know, because there must have been some sort of drumbeat in the publishing community. Mm. You know, very few debuts mm. have that experience. The yeah. ones that do, people tend to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a buzz about the book, that kind of mysterious word, the buzz, you know. Um, I was, someone asked me this just the other day and about what it was. And it's very difficult cause to, for me to pinpoint exactly why there was that buzz and what was, you know, I'd like to think it's because it's a good book, you know, but there are plenty of, I know, I now know, having read many proofs, um, you know, early, you know, uh, I think you call them proofs here, over here, do you? Yeah, kind of the early, early versions of a book before they're published. How many good galleys. books? Yeah, galleys, yeah. However, how, how, how many good books there are that don't, there aren't, there is no buzz about and don't go on to be most successful. The overwhelming yeah, majority. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, I've read, I've read galleys and thought that's, that's going to be huge and nothing. Yeah. Um, I think, I think with Before I Go to Sleep, it was, I suppose it, when you think about it, you know, there was that, there's, there are now lots of domestic noir books, you know, the girl on the train has been massive and there was Gone Girl and that, you know, those are just the two. But back then, I mean, that was one of the first really to have, and I'm not, I'm not claiming I invented a genre here, you know, but I think it definitely was, it, it had been a while since there'd been a book like that. Yeah. Um, so T- was timing that. matters. Timing yeah, matters. Timing. Yeah. But they, you know, I, I was reading. Uh, I was. Yeah. Speaking of zeitgeist, I was reading something related to the success of such books mm. in the wake of Gone Girl and Girl on the Train. And mm. It was the word girl. Mm. Yeah. Your, your book notably doesn't have does not. Journey, yeah. Wasn't before the girl goes to sleep. Yeah. Exactly. I you, mean, maybe it would be now if I submitted <laughs> it. But yeah. you could almost. Yeah. You should almost maybe tweak the title just to see if on reprint. You know. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know. It's bit, an, another wind. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was that you know success generates success doesn't it that's the thing and I think I think the first thing that was remarkable about before I go to sleep really in terms of from a publishing side was the fact that it was translated or, or rather we sold so many translations cause why it, what was it do we, what do you think about the foreign like the appeal of foreign markets I mean I have no I, I mean I suppose although it's set in London the very fact that it's it's narrated by a woman who ha- has only very kind of um, tenuous grasp really on who and where she is it could really be set anywhere and i suppose that that means the kind of cultural references maybe translate well because well, and it's also it's all going on in someone's head essentially yeah but it's also you know it's really really hard to to be good at story mm. and to and to spin like a really mm. like spellbinding plot that's mm. that's hard to do and when yeah. people when people find one you know, I think maybe like, that's my theory on it anyway. That had to have been a big part yeah, of it. Yeah, I think that- I think you're probably right because I mean I'm thinking about it now. And we we when we were when the book had been submitted to to uh, publishers, we did get quite a lot of emails from people saying, you know, I love this book and I forgot to feed my children the night I was reading it, and you know, and uh, and I missed my bus stop and ended up at the you know, wrong end of the city or and things like. That. And I suppose that's a great compliment and the number of readers since that have come up to me and said you know i read it in one sitting or you know, in one day or whatever um that's a that's 
you know, I, I love it when a book does that with me. When sure. I, when, I, when I can't, you know, I don't really want to be doing anything else and I can't wait to get back to the pages. So I think there was, there was that aspect to it, um, which maybe is one of the reasons why it did, did and, trans, and has translated so well to lots... I mean, not, some countries didn't get it. There are places that I haven't at my advance, you know, but it's a surreal... It's a surreal thing to think, you know, it's, I think it's in China it's one of the biggest ever selling... How many book. copies has, has the book sold? In, worldwide, it's, well, I think it's probably five to six million now. Okay. It's <laughs> not so bad. Know, it's not so bad, no. <laughs> it's, and it's, um, you know, it's surreal. And um, I can't, you know, I, I can't. I don't know why it was so big. Certain territories, particularly, I don't. I have no idea why it was so big in China, and, and I can't really try and work it out. And, when did you know, you know? Like, when did you know at home in London, the book? You know, you hit your publication day. Like, when did you and your agent and your publisher start to realize, like, oh, this this thing's taking off? Um, with me, that's a that's a surprisingly difficult question to answer because it, it was it's kind of gradual. But so it didn't just explode off the start out of the starting gates. It, well, it was it was more. It was yeah. It was it was kind of before it was even published. Really, there were I had this. Well, I mean, first of all, my 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 friend and the tutor on my course, Richard, uh, told me I went to see him. I think we went for a drink or something. But um, this is before the book came out, and I remember he said that he'd had his hair cut, and his hairdresser was talking to because he, he'd said because he's a writer too obviously and he'd said oh yeah I'm a writer and his hairdresser they started talking about books and before the book had even been published his hairdresser had said I've heard there's a book coming out about a woman who has no memory and that was a really surreal you know surreal why thing because he'd because, I mean, I, was it in the media like with it yeah I mean it, yeah there would be but not massively I mean it wasn't sort of everywhere but yeah but there were people were obviously talking talking about it and um you know and then the the first review the Guardian reviewed it really nicely. Which was also, you know, because I'd been sitting there at home, fingers crossed there would even be a review at all mm. um, in the press, and and people were kind, and uh, yeah, and then and then word of mouth, yeah, I think yeah, I mean it, it was, um, if I remember rightly, it was it was a in the top ten in the Sunday Times bestseller list in hardback in the first week it came out, and that's that's a kind of like whoa. Because you know, because no matter how much buzz there is and how much people are talking about it, you know, you never know whether actually people are going to get go out and buy it. That's a bit, there's a big difference. Yeah, there's, there's a big, a big difference. difference yeah. you, people will even show up to your reading. They'll go out to a bookstore, mm. or they'll be at the bookstore and just sort of like you know stumble into the reading, mm. and then they won't buy the book. Yeah, that's yeah. a weird thing. Yeah, you're going to come all the way out to the bookstore. Yeah. But I mean, you know, books are expensive. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, in, compared to many things, they're not that expensive. But they, you know. It's especially a, it's for a hardback, especially for hardback, you know, and it, it, I can I totally get that, you know. Um, but yeah, people, it just just developed this life and then of its own, and people were people with I suppose, I think I mean people within publishing were all talking about it, and I was very lucky because um, I have four English language editors, um, and they were they're all amazing, you know, and um, and. Uh, the book, the book was in good hands from the very, very beginning, um, and, and people just made stuff happen. And I think it kind of helped as well that it was kind of high concept. You know, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, this is the thing too, is that you know, tra- like when I think about the book success in foreign markets, and I think about the book success generally, you know, when it comes to story and when it comes to the media landscape that we exist in now, 
where you know where you have so many different things competing mm. for people's attention having a story with a really high concept where you have this hairdresser saying it's about a woman who yeah. has no memory yeah you know people know what it is yeah they can yeah. describe it to one another and exactly like, yeah. and like you can speak the the book in a sentence or two and know what it is yeah. and you know, it's, the, it's the whole idea of an elevator pitch, isn't it? Which yeah. can be, which can make people recoil. Like mm. it's like, ugh, like what, a, what an onerous mm. burden to. Like it's hard mm. enough to write a book, but mm. to also have to write a book that you can reduce yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, it's, but some people have a gift for it. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe that's part of your gift is like an ability to conjure stories that have um, that big, that big, interesting mm. hook. I don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I, for me, the, it's, it's about I don't want to be boring when I write. So, but a lot of people could stand to be less boring. A lot yeah. of writers, it's a good. I mean, mm. it's a good thing to not want to be. And mm. maybe you know, yeah, it's the kind of thing I should enforce on myself more often. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think a lot of it goes back to. I remember again, it was Claire. Convo, my agent, um, she, when she came to speak to us, I remember she was telling us a story about... I mean, she was really talking to us about just how difficult it is to um, for an unpublished and for a, de- you know, for a debut author because you know, how many submissions she gets to her agency, you know, and how, what your chances are of being picked up off the slush pile, in inverted commas, you know, it's yeah. quite... And she was saying, the, the analogy that... or the, the story that she tells is, you know, you imagine that... that She's there, and, I, and now I know her. I, you know, I can picture that. You know, that she 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 probably would. She's probably got a lunch date that she's got to get to, and then she's also got, you know, um, uh, three emails, five emails that she's got to respond to, and the phone's probably ringing, and her mobile's probably ringing, and then you know, and and then life, and then life is happening as well, and then and she probably wants to go downstairs to go and have a cigarette or whatever, you know, and and she hasn't had a coffee, so she w- wants to get to the kettle, and then but she's also got this pile of manuscripts to get through. And she, she basically, you know, she said you know, most of them are rubbish. And she, she was kind of, and this is me paraphrasing, but she's sort of saying, you know, so if, you've, if you're going to submit a rubbish manuscript, please make it rubbish on the first page. Yeah. So that I can, I know straight away. Or not one of those novels that like comes apart in spectacular fashion on yeah, page 178. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I had this mental image or this, this idea of, of an agent sitting there thinking, I really want to go make a cup of coffee, but, but I'll wait till this book gets boring so, so my kind of guiding principle in some ways was to make sure that I, every page was more interesting than the kettle there or the cigarette or the cigarette yeah that's that's yeah. that's simple <laughs> clear advice yeah so this book was made or the, the your debut before i go to sleep was made into a movie mm. yeah. so again the, again the corollaries there you know mm. when the term comes to plotting not being bored high mm. concept mm. all the things that uh, hollywood claims to love mm. so what was that process like Amazing. I mean, again, it was it was it's the dream, isn't it? Uh, and uh, I never thought I would ever have a a book of mine turned into a film. It was, let alone a film which I think is really good. And has, was it made in London? Did they it film was on location? shot in London. Yeah, but um, Nicole Kidman, Nicole Kidman, Colin Firth, Firth, Mark Strong. Yeah, yeah, and and Anne Marie Duff. I think she's less well known over here, perhaps. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was great, and um, I was very lucky because. Well, I mean, there were, I, I say lucky, I mean, I, it wasn't accidental, but there were a number of people interested in the, in the rights. But the first people to approach us 
were um, Liza Marshall, the producer, and Rowan Joffe, who wrote and, wrote and directed it. And they, they came and they had a, plan, a very clear plan of what they wanted to do, and Rowan loved the material. Well, they both loved the material, but Rowan... It was particularly important for me that Rowan, Rowan loved it because I didn't want to write a screenplay. You didn't? I was going to ask no, you. You no, didn't want nothing wasn't. to do with that? Yeah. No, Why not? I mean, well, a number of reasons, really. I mean, first of all, I'd just spent however long, you know, two years by this point, maybe in the world of this book, and I wanted to do something else. Um, there was also an element of, you know, I was very aware that writing a screenplay isn't just taking all the boring bits out of your novel and just leaving the dialogue behind, and it's a whole different skill set that I didn't know whether I wanted to learn back then. Um, Have you changed since then? Yeah, now I'm much more interested in having a go now, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you're in the right place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um but back then, I, it, I just—I suppose—I just signed two book deals everywhere as well. With a de- I had a deadline to deliver another novel, so I thought I don't want to be. Oh, you had a two book deal. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so I, I knew that that was my pri- my priority had to be a second book, um, and also and also I'd heard so many stories about films that even when the option is bought that don't actually end up being made, I think it's something like 20% of books that are optioned actually make it as yeah, far as a, the screen. It's and a crazy process. Yeah, and I'd, and I'd read that the average time taken between optioning a film, uh, a book rather, and, and it appearing on the screen is nine years. And I thought, actually, if I just get too involved in this whole process, I can just see it being one long, frustrating voyage of disappointment. And you know, um, You're a rational man. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, Maybe that's that's concerned, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, so and also I thought, and also, if the film is rubbish, it it would be quite nice to be able to say, well, it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's kind of best of both worlds. Completely wash your hands of it. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, yeah, it's best of both worlds. If the film is good, I can say, yeah, I wrote the book. It was based on. So, did, did you get to go on set? I did. Yeah. Did you meet the actors? Yeah. Did the actors did. consult you at all? Did they like? Because no. I'm always curious about that. Like they probably yeah. don't. They, they they do. They they have their own thing. Well, I mean. Um, I, you know, certainly Nicole Kim and Colin Firth, I think, did a lot of research in the characters and, uh, and, um, and. Like, do they pay, yeah. like, like, not that they owe you that much, but, like, were they respectful of the fact that you had created this whole beast, that it was your. Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, very much so. But, but, but also, I mean, I think. It wasn't like the Charlie Kaufman, like, you're sitting on the side of the set, and, like, nobody, <laughs> no, no, people are, like, asking you for coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, kind of, I think, I think, you know, I went so many times. I mean, like, it was, it was filmed um, at studios about 45 minutes away from where I live, so it was very local. And, uh, <laughs> and Liza said, you know, you can come as often as you like. And I, I think they were probably, yeah, I think they weren't perhaps prepared for how many times I did turn up. It was quite a short shoot. Well, I went about eight or nine times. But really, I think perhaps I may be imagining this, but I think the first time I turned up, they were probably worried that I was going to be there and saying, "Well, actually, you've got the voice all wrong, and she would never wear those clothes, and this is the wrong color." But you had wallpaper. to be. You had to be. Not that you were necessarily nitpicking it vocally. But it's your world, it's your book, you have a certain idea of it, and then you're seeing it filmed, which has got to be a thrill. There yeah. had to be points where you're like, <laughs> like internally, but you, you know, wouldn't want to share them because really, it's their movie. Not really, because, yes, it was, it, I've, I made the decision very much so that it was their movie. And, and my, my, my principle, I suppose, was I thought if, if anything is suggested that I feel very strongly is, n- is a bad move or the wrong idea, I was prepared to have that battle. But nothing ever was. I mean, and there were a few quite significant changes, but in every case, I could see totally why Rowan had made that change. So, did you get a cameo like an Arthur? Oh, like no, I would have liked to have done that. Actually, like just yeah. like you on the side, on yeah, the tube. I would or have liked to have done that, but um, 
No. <laughs> next movie. Um, next ne- time. Around. Perhaps next time. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was there was nothing that they tried to do that I didn't agree with, and so I think I think of it in terms of it feels perhaps a little bit like I imagine if a musician who writes a song and then maybe even has success with that song, but then someone else does a cover version of it. You it's know, very flattering, and, it, and it's different, and it's flattering. Yeah, exactly, it's flattering. Unless, and they, it unless really, they just butcher it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even then, even then, <laughs> even it's like, then, you know, the, the, it doesn't detract from. I mean, the thing is, I can't really lose because people come up to me and say, "I love the film," and that's great. Or they come up to me and say. I thought the book was better, and that's great too. Well, and it also yeah. expands your readership. It yeah. confers a certain legitimacy on the on the book somehow. It expand, mm. you know, it expands an audience. And I don't know. I think most writers who write books, that is part of the dream, is that wow, that'd be so cool if somebody mm. adapted it. Mm. And to have like world class actors yeah, performing exactly. those yeah. lines, and to see that sort, of, that's got to be a surreal moment. Yeah, exactly. It was totally surreal, and, and as well, it it was kind of important for me because it it felt like I was saying goodbye to those characters too. There was one. I was on scene on set um, on one day when they were filming a scene, and it wasn't working quite. And I'd read the script for that day, and I also thought this isn't something about it just didn't f- quite fit or quite sit right. And I, but I couldn't work out what it was. And then um, they tried several takes, and then and then Nicole Kidman um, spoke to Rowan and said, "It's this word or it's this line." She wouldn't say that. And then she made another suggestion. And as soon as she did, the, the scene worked. And I realised how just she was exactly right, that actually the character, it, 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 her reaction was just not right for her. And I, at that moment, I remember thinking really clearly, Nicole Kidman, this is her character now. She knows this character I was better say, than I do. I, you remember thinking, Nicole, you know what? You're pretty good at this. <laughs> you keep going. Yeah. I think she'll go far. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So now, uh, you know, you've had all this success. And... Uh, you're sort of living your dream, but then you know the movie finishes shooting, things start to get, you know, they start to settle down for you a little bit, mm. and then you've got to, uh, you've got to follow it up. Mm. That's a big, big second act. It's a big, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, um, I actually began writing the book that eventually became Second Life way before the film had even started shooting. But now I can look back and realise that I'd, I started too early. I wasn't quite ready because before I, because of the success of Before I Go to Sleep. And again, I don't want this to sound like a complaint because I'm not complaining, but because of its success, it just had a longevity which I wasn't really prepared for. And, and the film was part of that too. And it just began, it was still occupying. No, you become kind you of know, like an ambassador for the yeah, book. Yeah, it was still there as a thing in my in my brain to think about for a long long time and I was trying to so I was trying to exist and work and be in the world of a new book but before I go to sleep it just kept on pulling me back um and it was only really in 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 many ways it was only really when the film wrapped up um that I was able to say goodbye and then really fully focus on a new book which I think is why is one of the reasons that there's been a lot where there was a long gap between the first two books. Okay. Do you have any jitters? Was it, was it a, was there an emotional component or like any kind of neurosis about like, Oh God, how do I make a better book than like, I'm never going to be able to repeat that success. Do you have, how do you deal with that? Um, and you have a a phrase over here that uh, we don't really have in the UK. Don't you about sophomore slump? Yeah. And that was, you know, although I didn't know that's what it's called. That's kind of what I was worried about because yeah, I felt a little bit like somebody who'd, 
kind of wandered onto a golf course, not really knowing how to play, and then scored a hole in one. <laughs> and then, and <laughs> then everyone was good, like, you're yeah. really good at golf, go and do it again. And I was like, well, you know, not that I'm saying it was a fluke, because I worked really hard, but, but there's an element of, I don't, I don't really know whether I can do it again. And then, and also, um, you know, I wrote before I go to sleep, in this, although I didn't realise it at the time, in this state of blissful ignorance, I was writing predominantly for myself, um, my the colleagues on my course that's the glory yeah. of, the, of the debut yeah you're exactly. kind of in yeah you don't have any connection have to any, the no, commerce and, and, yeah exactly and i didn't have to worry about what anybody else really thought and i was obviously hoping that an agent might like it <clears throat> and then perhaps other editors may like it as well um and but the idea of, a, of maybe you know my biggest ambition was to maybe get a handful of readers and then when I sat down to write Second Life, you know, I, I had not only an agent, I had a top agent. I didn't, I didn't just have an editor. I had 40 editors or something, you know. Yeah. And um, I wasn't keeping my fingers crossed I might be reviewed. I was, you know, the, the papers are going to review me and they may not necessarily be kind because not everybody loves before I go to sleep, you know. Well, and also, like, with the second one, you know, especially in the wake of such a, a smashing uh, debut, mm. the knives are out. Well, yeah. People love yeah. to see some, you know, like some yeah. people love to see people fall. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, so all, all of those things, and, and more importantly than any of those people, you know, I, I, I'd sold however many million copies before I go to sleep. So at least a, a percentage of those people were going to be interested in the new book. And I didn't want to let them down. You sure. Know? So... Um, and so it became very difficult. I mean, I think it, I think it's a Stephen King quote, but there's a, a, a quote uh, about you have to write the first draft of a novel with your with your with your study door closed, and then the second draft with the door open. You know, meaning the second draft is when you start to worry about the reader and what other people are going to think. But the first draft has to be for yourself. And it just became very difficult for me to keep the door closed because there's the, it just psychologically felt that there were so many more people. Who were interested and um, no pressure, just no, yeah. five million people. Yeah, exactly. And I started to second guess everything and worry about this and worry about that and worry about the other. And then, so eventually, I just you know, know what, you know what's crazy. What's that? People writers do that who have like five hundred readers. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? But what I totally get that. You know, suddenly it's not just about you anymore. Yeah. Um. You know, but for me, so for me, the journey with Second Life was actually coming back around to realising I have to write the book that I want to write and the book I'd want to read. And in the same way that with Before I Go to Sleep, hope that other people will find something in it as well. I had to, I had to kind of shut all those people out. So how did you get the hook for Second Life? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, mean, yeah. I, I guess I could say the same thing for Before I Go to Sleep, mm. but like, what is, it, what is your process where you land on the, the high concept? Yeah, well... Before I go to sleep was very easy. I mean, it was in, in terms of give, telling you where it came from. It came from I read an obituary of a man who had no memory, and I I've I, had more than one writer on this program tell me that they got the idea for their book by reading the obituary section. Yeah, it's a good thing to do, maybe. Yeah, I, I'd I'd read somewhere that it's a good thing to do, which is why great I was way doing to, it. It's a great way to start your day. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I think it's be, well, it's because it's because obituaries they give you a complete overview of a character from usually right from where they're born, their major achievements in life, right through to their death and their family. And you can picture an entire character. So they just can, they can just, in a few hundred words, can spark off a character, which is why I was reading um, obituaries when I was looking for ideas for what to write on my course. And I read this, I read this obituary of this man and, and, um, and I just... What was his name? His name was Henry Malaison, although for most of his life he was known as Patient H.M. And where is he from? He was born in Connecticut. 
Oh my um, God. Oh my God. Okay. So here's a, here's a random quote for you or a <laughs> random uh, connection for you. Was his doctor, uh, or one of the people who studied him, a woman by the last name of Corkin? Yes. I went to college. I'm friends with her daughter. Oh, wow. And here, oh, wow. But just to make this happen full circle, um, she just passed away. Oh, no. Right. And the only reason I knew that, and the only reason I knew what she did professionally, like my, her daughter, Jocelyn, had never told me. We went mm. to college together. And I was reading the New York Times. And wow. I flipped the, to the obituary yeah. section. Okay. And there's the obituary yeah. and, a, and a photo of her. Mm. And her last name's Corkin. She resembles Jocelyn. Mm. And, I, and she's from Boston. which mm. you know, So it all came together. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. Her, mm. And so I sent her a note. And sure enough, she wrote me back and said, thanks. You know, I sent her a note of condolence. But mm. she studied this guy. Right, yeah. That's so right, yeah. yeah. Small world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and um, so, yeah, the obituary described uh, how Henry, for all of his adult life, really, was able to form no memory. And, um, and I, I just had this mental image of somebody. I was thinking he must have woken up, you know, in his 60s, 70s, 80s and gone to the bathroom mirror and expected to see someone in his 20s because his most recent memory... Um, he had he had an amnesia as a result of um, an operation which was um, intended to help him with his very severe epilepsy, and it was largely successful. My understanding is it helped him with his with his epilepsy, but but removed the parts of his brain that were responsible for forming memory. And I just I had this mental image of a, of, a, of somebody looking in a mirror and expecting to see a young person and seeing someone much older. Um, and that's really where the opening. Well, that's where yeah. So, so the kind of uh, the opening scene before I go to sleep just came, an image. came just came as I read really, literally just kind of like bolt out of the blue. But with Second Life, it was much more of a an organic kind of process. Lots of lots of things I'd been interested in kind of swirled around and, and gradually coalesced around this idea. Um, the internet, yeah, uh, yeah. Because I mean, it, the way people exist online, exactly, relate yeah. to one another, yeah. Cyber dating, yes, yeah. All of those things, identity creation, yeah. I mean, I, I, identity, I think, is the, was the big one for me. I mean, in some ways, before where, where before I go to sleep is about somebody who doesn't really, well, does have an identity, but has no idea what it is and doesn't know themselves. This is a book about somebody who actually has several. I mean, the working title for most of Why stop at one? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and none of us do. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's something we all do, by which I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a different person now as I'm speaking to you than I am at home with my family. Really? And I'm a different person again if I'm with my parents, for example. Yeah, that's true. And I'd be a different person again when I'm, you know, so we all, we all contain within us different versions of ourselves. Yeah, this is the podcast, Brad, right here. <laughs> yeah. Whatever yeah. that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, and... Uh, and that's not something that's unique to, to me, certainly, and it's not unique to people who use the internet. But I think what the internet can do is, um, I was just very, very, I became very fascinated by the fact that, you know, you have Facebook and Twitter and um, I'm going to forget, you know, LinkedIn, you know, and on each of those different sites, you have a different, you can present a slightly different side of yourself. And then when you factor in dating websites where you're, you know, you, you don't choose any old picture of yourself, do you, on a dating website? You choose one where you look, you look, where you just happen to look, the light's particularly good or whatever. And you, so I see, yeah. I met my wife just before like dating websites really took off. Mm. So I never did one. Mm. Did you do, have you done this? Have you oh, dated? Yeah. 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 So you know that, like the self presentation. Yeah. It's got to be a little unnerving because it's like you, you, you want to be authentic, but you also have have to present your best self to a certain extent if you want the thing yeah, to work. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, in the same way that if you're going on a blind date, you don't you don't 
wear any old clothes. You know, you think about what you're going to wear and, you know, you have a shower first. But you're like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to overdress. Yeah. I can see myself obsessing. Be like, I don't want to overdress because then that get, look, well, yeah, look well, like I'm trying too hard. Yeah. I want to go mm. in look, looking like myself, mm. but I don't want to go in under, you know. Mm. Exactly. You know, and so I was thinking about all of that and, um, and um, you know, the sex websites as well or something else. So there are all these different opportunities for people to present themselves online and, and it's very easy online to be something totally different i mean also feeding into this was 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 um the fact that the the internet and social networking and social media provides this and this this anonymity that people can hide behind and you know we had a story uh, a couple of years ago in the uk in which um um i can't remember uh, her name now but somebody dared to suggest um that and this is an academic, you know, somebody dared to suggest that uh, we, we perhaps could have a female on one of our banknotes because all of our banknotes basically have pictures of dead white guys. You know, Same with ours. Yeah. And, uh, and this woman was like, well, we, could, you know, we do have women in the UK that have done stuff too. Maybe we could have a woman on our banknote. And, but, and, um, and uh, not the mainstream press, but in terms of the, the abuse she got on Twitter, particularly from, from people... And the, the most horrific abuse, you know, sexual threats, and I'm sure you can imagine, I don't need to go into it, but just for dare and suggest something which is fairly, you know, innocuous, I would have thought should have been fairly, like, yeah, of course we should have a woman. It's obvious. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that fascinates me about that, one of the things that fascinates me about that uh, is that you can bet that most, if not all, of those people who were saying these terrible things, if they had to go up to her and say it to oh, her yeah. face, I was just gonna they say, never would. Ever. You know? There's a, there's a, like you talk about having having different identities and behaving in different contexts. You know, like uh, the Steve that you are now is not the mm. Steve that you are when you're with your parents. Mm. It's not the Steve that you are, um, you know, whatever. Yeah. In, in all these different environments, and the internet's just another mm. environment, and mm. it's a, and it's one that people. You know, it's the anonymity. Yeah. It's the lack of consequence. Yeah. It's the vastness of it. Yeah. Who's ever going to see this? Yeah. And also it's the immediacy of it as well. I think, it, you know, in the olden days, I sound like an old person, but in the old, in the, before the internet was quite so, or, or existed in the way it does now at least, if you, if somebody annoyed you, you know, if for example you, you read a book you didn't like, even if you really hated that book and you thought, I'm going to write to the author and tell them how much I hate their book. You know, you'd have to go and find a bit what, what of paper a and a the pen ass. and a stamp. <laughs> and then you'd need to find out somehow, you know, where how to get hold of the author. You know, you, by the time you'd done all that, you'd be like, actually, it's burnt off now. I'm not yeah. going to bother. Whereas nowadays, people can, people can, and it's not, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's not all about, you know, authors and books, but before, you know, five seconds after being annoyed, you've suddenly you've sent tweets here and Facebook message there and you've, it's just... You know, it's uh, it's very sort of. Uh, I, th I think I think it's just a different way of living that we're not really uh, able to cope with yet. You know, by which I mean, I suppose a kid being bullied at school now. You know, when I was at school, even if you were, had the most horrific day and were being bullied left, right, and centre at three twenty-five or whenever school day finishes, you go home and you're with your family or done. your friends and you're done. Whereas right. nowadays that bullying can carry on 24 seven. Yeah. And, um, and then, I mean, and, and I would imagine that it's much as it, as it is like, it's even more vicious online. Mm. So it's like you have it all day in person and then mm. you go home and it just gets really ugly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, and so while the book isn't sort of really directly about that in any way, 
I was thinking a lot about it, the internet and online identity and also um I mean, one of the places the title comes from, The Second Life, comes from, I suppose, my own experience in terms of... It's a book about a woman who is living a particular... When the book opens, at least, is living a particularly... I mean, she's comfortable, she's happy, she's she's fairly ordinary in many ways. Um, but someone who's who's got a different past, you know, she's lived a past of of, of excess and, and, uh, and wildness and danger and excitement. Um, and I suppose, you know, I was looking at whether... I mean, because I think that's again, that's also fairly normal. That you know, you know, I, I I was a different person when I was a clinical scientist, and I am as an author, and I've had to kind of marry those two selves up, if you like, or 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 be able to to sort of negotiate the fact that I'm this I'm the same person. You know, I'm still Steve, and I still you know I'm not suddenly someone totally different. But, but now, you're an, token, now totally, you're an yeah. international sensation. Yeah, you know, sitting here and talking to you is not something that I ever I ever dreamt would happen. And so, um, I suppose it's about the way that life changes, and we all, we all not only do we have different selves that we we present at different times, we also have different selves over our lifetime, if you like, you know. But again, that's not something that's unique to my character or to me or it's something that's true of everybody well but the internet just kind of maybe makes it easier to try on different masks yeah the speed of it like you say the immediacy yeah like you can yeah you can be you could be i mean if you really wanted to there's no limit to how many selves you could be you know projecting out into the world yeah exactly exactly um so all of those all of those ideas were 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 in there and i was also it, it was kind of triggered by a blog i used to read as well um What's the blog? Um, it's it's I w- it, it's not it's not a famous one. It's, it's it was very from, from the very early days of blogging. It's this woman who was just writing about her life essentially, and her li- and she wasn't famous. I mean, it wasn't, but she was very good. It was very good writing, and and she was an inspiring novelist as well. So I suppose that's one of the reasons that I connected with it. But she would just talk about her. It was like a, an online journal, really. She would talk about her life and her feelings and her you know, desires and hopes and everything. Old but, school uh, blogging. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, I mean, you know, I think I think I've always had a bit of a slightly nosy element. It's sort of, you know, I love nothing more. What, my favourite biography, stroke autobiographies are the, are the diaries, you know, Kenneth Williams' diaries and Joe Orton's diaries and stuff because I love all that kind of gossip and seediness. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. Uh, so, yeah, so I read this woman's blog quite regularly and... Um, and I suppose over time, I just I began to feel that we were friends, and then I realised, you know, we're not friends. I, I, I we've never met. We probably never would meet. Did you did you dialogue in the comment boards or anything like that? Like twice, but that's not really my style. So there was yeah. one. There was one. Uh, there was one. She made a comment about a, a certain kind of fragrance that she liked, and I I, I quite like perfumes and fragrances. So I, I kind of suggested, oh, you might if you like that, you might like this. And we had a bit of a. But it wasn't. That what, do, was what do you mean? You like colognes? You just like you like them? I just like smells. Yeah. Oh, you do. Okay. Well, generally speaking, like not smells that you buy. What are you wearing right now? Are you wearing a? Cologne? I'm wearing a fragrance called Fat Electrician. <laughs> What's it's it? By, it's by a French uh, house called Etat Libre d'Orange. For real? Yeah. Okay. It's called Fat Electrician. Yeah. I have a terrible sense of smell. Yeah. It's. It's. I haven't got that much on because I didn't bring that much with me, so it's probably faded anyway. But yeah, um, it's just one of the one of my interests. Um, you have a very like. Do you have a very good sense of smell? Like very. Can you pick? Up I don't. Smell? No, I no, I don't really. But uh, I just. Um, 
I just realised there's a whole world out there, you know, of, of different and interesting fragrances, and some have got massive history behind them, and it's just quite a fascinating field, really. Um, and the and the one I I mentioned to this this woman was uh it's one based on um, it's called um, oh I can't remember what it's called nostalgia I think it's called, but it's based on the smell of an old car race. So it's kind of got engine oil in it. It sounds horrible, but it's very nice. It is interesting too when you think about. I mean, this is this is. You know, uh, drawing a line between uh, semi-related things, I guess. Mm. But uh, it's interesting the way that smells can trigger memory. Like, mm. to, you know, Massively, I'm thinking yeah. of before I go yeah. to sleep, and yeah. but that can happen to me. You know, well, or yeah. you can have these. You know, you can have these really um, deep feelings mm. for a particular smell. Mm. You know, usually totally. re- related to childhood, like fresh cut grass. I think or, I'm right, and I'm someone may well correct me. I don't know, but I think I'm right in saying that the smell, the center in the brain. That processes smell is very close to the center that processes memory. That makes sense. Yeah, so I think that's possibly one of the reasons. But absolutely, I mean, the smell of baking bread takes me back. For some reason, I don't know why, it takes me back to Torquay, <laughs> which is a, 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 a seaside town where I used to holiday as a child. And I, there must have been a bakery there that, for some reason, imprinted its smell. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, like what else? Like, are there any other like smells for you that like take you back or that are very like significant? Well, there's one that's significant, but it's not a pleasant one. <laughs> <laughs> what would that I, be? I did, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, on a, on the radio in the UK, and I was asked what my superpower would be. I don't know why they were talking about superpowers, but they were talking about superpowers. And they asked me what my superpower was. Uh-huh. And I said, <laughs> this is it, but you may want to edit this out because it's not that pleasant. I can, I can smell when someone has an ear infection. <laughs> At a very long distance, <laughs> like I can get, I can get on a tube train in London, and I, I know if someone in the carriage has an ear infection. Wow! And that's because I used to work with ears, and oh, so right. I've, I've been close up to people, and it's the most horrific smell, and it, it kind of imprints itself. So I can, what does it smell like? It, it, I can't describe it. It's just this. It's just because my kids have had ear infections, I haven't smelled anything. But mm, maybe mean, they haven't had external ear infections then of this type. Maybe it's a specific type, but it's just this, I don't know. It's like once you've smelt it, you just recognize it. What can you compare it to? Is it hot garbage? What is it? Yeah, it's like rotting, you know, I was going to say it's like the streets of New York in the morning, but (laughs) that's perhaps a little bit. In the summer. In In the the winter, you can't smell. Yeah, yeah. And and in one particular, where where my hotel was on this trip, there was quite a pungent smell from that. But it's worse than that. It's it's like that time. It's like like if if you imagine that sort of concentrated and bottled and, and, and mixed with other unpleasant stuff that we don't really need to discuss it's just the most horrific smell well this is the first time yeah so that particular topic that we've been discussing <laughs> this podcast you've just distinguished yourself excellent now that's my superpower being able to be, you know you know if you've got an ear infection i would know so you can stay away yeah well yeah it's, just, like, it's horrible so are you are you working on another book are you, uh, yeah, are you touring I this one or are you actually you're doing both at the same time yeah no i've just touched wood i'm looking for wood to touch i've just finished I say touch wood because I've just given it in to my editors. Like literally, I think literally the day before I got on the plane. So do you have a book out. deal for it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so it's all lined it, up. Yeah. Yeah. But it, of course, it's only lined up if they like it. Right. <laughs> um, I th- I think it's great. Can we? Can you tell us what it's called at least? Um, or is it too early for that? Well, no. I I think I can. Yeah. It's it, it for a long time it had a different title, but just last week. See, again, this is why I'm slightly hesitant because. Um, it, it very much depends on whether all my editors like it, but so far it's gone down well. It's going to be called Blackwood Bay. 
And do you have like why do you, you have like a team of editors? Sorry, you do have I? A, you, have a, you have a team of editors. Yeah, it's 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 quite an unusual situation, but I've I've actually got editors in uh, the US and Canada and the UK and oh, oh, okay. and um, Australia and New Zealand. So, and they all have to sort of. Like form a consensus? Is that what has to happen? Mm, no. not. Is it all not, with the same publisher? Yeah, no, they're all different publishers. Well, over here in Canada, it's the same publisher. Yeah. So that's like slightly more simple. I mean, it's it's the editing stage is quite interesting because I was very, very clear uh, that I don't want there to be different versions of the book in different countries. Yeah. Um, with Before I Go to Sleep, I have to say, there are some changes. Like I was, I was, it was suggested quite strongly that I should change some of the more English terms to um, US terms so um, like what like all the taps became faucets and all the wardrobes became closets but those are that's minor right yeah it's minor until you have to edit it by hand and change every single mention of the you never realize how many times you've used the word wardrobe until you have to go through and change them all to closet right make sure you didn't miss miss any can't you outsource that at this point Uh, well I (laughs) maybe I could now but back then I couldn't (laughs) right you know, so there are those things, uh, but in terms of a more general sense, um, it's really just a case of, I suppose, getting everyone's opinion about the book and then deciding, because it, it has to be my book, and so, you know, I have to make only make the changes I want to make, obviously, and uh, I've ne- I mean, luckily I've never had a situation yet where one of my editors thinks strongly this and the, another thinks that I, you know, it's something the opposite. It's a testament to your clarity of vision, strength maybe, of your vision. Yeah, what's maybe. the What's the new book about? Can we get any hints? You know, I'm the worst. What's the What's the elevator pitch? It, there isn't an elevator pitch yet. I, that, <laughs> oh, that's shit. the last thing I come up with. Yeah, no, I um, it's funny because I'm the worst person at, at doing at this stage. I, I remember <laughs> there was a book. There's a book I I loved. Um, a few years, a couple of years ago, and I was telling everybody about this book and how much I'd read. The, I'd read the galley, the proof, and I really loved it. And I thought it was going to be huge. And I remember telling every, everybody, would say, I would say, I really loved this book. And they were like, Oh, what's it about? And I said, Well, it's it's kind of about such and such, but it's not really about that. It's more really about. And they were like, You're terrible at selling books, Steve. So I'm not good at it's 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 my new book. That's it's, what your agent is for. That's what my agent is for exactly. And by the time I'm I'm kind of out on the road promoting the new book, I'm going to be really good at it. That's right. But at the moment, I'm still a bit like it's sort of about. It's um. It's, is, there a fem- is, there, it is there a female protagonist? There, well, I've tried. I, I'm, I'm kind of aware that with my first two books, they've both been narrated by women, and they've both been... I don't think they're similar in some ways, but they both, I suppose, chart the same kind of waters. They're women of a certain type, if you like, or a certain age, in a certain stage of their life, um, living in similar areas of a similar city, well, in London. So I was very much wanted to move away from that. So... It's about my new book is about a documentary filmmaker who travels to a um, an area of the north of England, a seaside town in the north of England, um, to make a film, and it's about uh, what she discovers there. Really, um, it's a it's a it's a film on which there's a, a girl has gone missing some years previously, and it's really looking at the repercussions of that kind of event and how um, that can affect. This is one of the things it's about, how, how, that, how that can affect the way... Uh, it's, it's about a small town, I suppose, a small community. Um, but tied in with all of that, I'm also interested in, you know, the recession and the, the collapse of the, you know, um, 
the Brexit. The, well, that, that's not in it, actually. <laughs> that's the next, that's the next book. That'll be, that'll be the next book, yeah. Um, I, it's funny, because I almost feel like I should go back and rewrite it now that Brexit has happened. And Anyway, um, and sort of how that... And the way that... It, it's a place in which, you know, people used to go on holiday, but now flights are cheap and people... You know, people can either afford to go to Spain or they can't afford to go on holiday at all. That's a generalisation, obviously. But, you know, I'm interested in how the recession can affect certain communities. And and also, it's a, it's a place where... Because um, it, it's based on a real place um, where people will... In the winter... I'm quite interested in the winter time in terms of, like, places where... It's the north of England, so it's cold in the winter. And people don't tend to go on holiday there. And so when you have this town that's built around tourism and built around visitors, they've all gone. You know, it leaves you know just a few people behind. So it's kind of um, like The Shining or something. Ish, yeah, ish. Not, uh, not quite. I would. Um, I mean, like, I, I wish I tourists. Could the Shining, yeah. but, you know. but you know, I just mean that, like you know, yeah. places that are uh, all about tourists. When the tourists leave, when the tourists, yeah, yeah. So something in that haunting sense, yes. and, and yeah, kind yeah, of uh, spooky yeah. about it. Yeah. But to answer your question, which I don't think I have actually yet, no, it's, it does have a, have a female protagonist. But I've, it's, it's written from different points of view, so there are diff- different voices in it. Um, so it's kind of a multi-viewpoint book. Well, I mean, so, stick with what's working. You're good at writing female protagonists. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I, really, I never sort of sat down and decided that was going to be my thing. Um, it, and it never really felt like a brave decision because... It happens to be a very smart decision, I think, from a business standpoint. I mean, women are the biggest readers. If, yeah, you know, yeah, if you yeah, can maybe. if you can reach them, um, statistically they read the most books. Mm. So I mean, it doesn't mm. hurt to have a female protagonist. No, no, and I, I was going to say, but women don't only read books with female protagonists. But perhaps, perhaps people are more likely to read a book with a main character they it can identify hurt. with. Yeah, it doesn't hurt, as you say. Although it's quite interesting because there is one country, one European country, that at least one, in fact, when Before I Go to Sleep came out, that they published it with my name is Steve Watson, not S.J. Watson. Because that wasn't, that wasn't a deliberate sort of like, let's, let's, let. But it, I suppose there was an element of blurring, you know, who I was. Doesn't hurt. No, again, doesn't hurt, yeah. And, um, but in some, several countries, they've, or at least one, they published it with Steve Watson. And when I asked why, they said it was because um, people won't buy books that they even suspect may have been written by a woman, which I find... Very, very odd. That is odd. Yeah. Where is this? I, genu- I genuinely can't remember. Hmm. And I probably wouldn't say even if I could because it would sound, you know. But um, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, wherever you're probably thinking it was, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of like the Middle East or anything like that. It was, it was, uh, it was Eastern Europe. Yeah. You know? All right. Well, listen, uh, it's great to talk to you. You too. Congratulations on all your success. Uh, good luck managing. I guess the jet lag is sort of, it's dissipated. Yeah, just in time for me to go back. So, I was going <laughs> to yeah. say, so have, have fun yeah, on the re-entry. Me on Thursday, I think, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, best of luck with whatever comes next. Thank you very much. All right, guys, there you go. That's S.J. Watson. His novel is called Second Life, available now in paperback from Harper. You can find him uh, online at sjwatson-books.com. His Twitter handle is at sj underscore watson. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thenervousbreakdown.com, for those of you unawares, is my online... Uh, I just said unawares. <laughs> for those of you who are unaware, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online uh, culture magazine literary community. It has its own monthly book club. You sign up, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. 
I then interview those authors on this program. It's a very nourishing cultural experience. I encourage you to investigate and explore. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app. Check out the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. You get the app. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. They automatically upload to the app. It's very easy and seamless. It's the best way to listen. You can also sign up for a premium subscription, which allows you to get at the full archives. You can do that right there within the app. It costs 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Okay, Evan, come over here. You're still hovering. You're hovering. What does that mean? It means you're standing right next to me. Come tell everybody. What do you want to tell people? What do you want everybody to know? Um, Say something to the nation. Tell them about me. What do you, what do you, think, uh, what do you think they should know about me? takes me out for breakfast on my birthday. That's in three days. And, um, well, um... What's interesting about me? Well, this is kind of weird and kind of interesting. My dad only takes my brother to the hair salon. You think, well, I th- I'm, I'm the dad. I'm supposed to, I mean, it, it makes sense that I would take the boy, right? Oh. Do you want me to take you to get your hair cut? Uh, we'll I... get you a mohawk. No! Shave your head. Stop it! Seriously? I'm serious. Stop it. All right. Please remember that uh, Henry David Thoreau died at age 45 and that Eugene Debs once said, quote, anybody can be nobody. Thanks uh, to S.J. Watson. Go get Second Life. Thanks to you guys for listening as always. Thanks. To my lovely co-host, Evan. (laughs) Say goodbye. Bye. I'll talk to you guys next time. I'll be back next week. It could be even more chaotic. I feel like this actually went kind of well. So maybe from now on, I'll just uh, do the show amid uh, the cacophony of domestic noises that may or may not intrude. You know what I'm saying. All right. We'll see you next time. You'll hear me next time. You know what I'm saying. (laughs) 